Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn Dewar and this is Policing Ireland, a history of the Gardaí. Ireland's police force, Angarda Siakana, emerged in a tumultuous period in Irish history. Immediately after the War of Independence, the government were tasked with founding a new police force. That they established an unarmed force in the Gardaí is often lauded as one of the early successes of independence. However, as is so often the case, the history of the Gardaí is far more complex than this simplistic narrative. In this episode, I interview Dr Vicky Conway, an Associate Professor in Law in Dublin City University. Vicky is a leading expert on policing in Ireland. She not only published a book on the history of the Gardaí, but sits on the Policing Authority, the independent body that oversees the performance of the force. Vicky also hosts her own podcast called Policed, which looks at the experience of being policed in Ireland. The name again is Policed. I'll put a link in the show notes below. In this interview, Vicky reveals the history of the Gardaí from its earliest days when it was rocked by a near mutiny to how it dealt with the troubles in the 1970s and 80s when the risks of serving on the force dramatically increased. Finally, before we start, just a reminder about the Irish History Summit coming up in January 2021. The summit has seven top speakers that will help students and teachers prepare for the Leaving Cert History exam of 2021. We have a lineup of top history lectures from Ireland's leading universities. You can see the full lineup at historysummit.eventbrite.com. Now, to get top marks in the Leaving Cert History, students need to illustrate evidence of outside reading, and that's exactly what the History Summit provides. The speakers, lecturers in history, as I say from Ireland's leading universities, are the people who provide cutting-edge research, so this will place students with an advantage going into the exams. We will also have Patrick Hickey speaking. Patrick knows Leaving Cert history better than most. With 11 years' experience of correcting history exam papers, Patrick has unique insights in how to do well in the exam. Many of you may already know Patrick from his social media profile, LC History Tutor, and at the summit he'll be explaining the do's and don'ts to maximise marks. So, whether you're a student of history or a teacher, the summit is going to be the key event to prepare for the Leaving Cert History exam in 2021. Don't forget, it's coming up in January, so book your tickets now at historysummit.eventbrite.com. That's historysummit.eventbrite.com. 
And finally, if you're listening to the ad-free version of this podcast on Patreon, next Monday I'll be posting a Christmas raffle limited to patrons. It will be free to enter and I've got some really decent prizes on offer for the patrons. It's a way to thank you all for getting me through what has been a very difficult year. In that post, patrons will also get the first glimpse of the upcoming series on the War of Independence. That's all coming, as I say, next Monday. But now to the history of the Gardaí. I started by asking Vicky to introduce herself. I'm Dr Vicky Conway. I'm an Associate Professor of Law at Dublin City University. Um, and my research is all about the guards, um, particularly guard accountability. Um, I've been looking at this area for almost 20 years since I did my PhD on that topic in Queens and Belfast. Um, I've also served as a member of the Policing Authority and the Commission on the Future of Policing. And now um, an exciting project I'm working on is the Policed podcast, where we put the lived experiences of, of what it's like to be policed in Ireland front and centre. So I've been working on that with the guys over at Tortoise Shack. To begin our discussions on the history of the Gardaí, we talked about the foundation of Angarda Siakana, or as it was first known initially, the Civic Guard. After independence, one of the first tasks of the newly established Free State Government was to establish a police force. The previous police, the Royal Irish Constabulary, was unfit for purpose given it had played an active part in the War of Independence and had little or no respect in many communities across Ireland. Indeed, it had no presence in many areas since the war had begun. Vicky started by explaining policing in Ireland prior to independence in 1922. It's so interesting when you look at that time. I mean, you had two police forces operating in the country, the Dublin Metropolitan Police and the Royal Irish Constabulary. And the Royal Irish Constabulary had, through the, the, the War of Independence, become a much-hated and maligned force, although the DMP was quite successful. And actually, when you look at 1922... The police, what was called the Police Organising Committee, which was set up to um, figure out what we do with policing. They were given about three weeks to do their task and they actually retained the DMP initially and replaced um, the RIC with a force called the Civic Guard, which looked very different to the RIC, Um, different uniform, different titles, all of that kind of thing, but actually in many ways was pretty much identical. Um, used the same manual, had the same reporting structures, worked in the same barracks, all of this kind of stuff. And actually was armed initially. Um, it was the intention that every police officer would carry a lethal weapon. And it was only when they were training in Kildare that summer. And one of the defining features was that like basically RIC members pretty much weren't allowed to join the Civic Guard. So 97% of the new Civic Guard was ex-IRA and only 3% were RIC. But of course, those 3% were the only ones with any policing experience. So they were given senior positions and then lower members um, mutinied over that. And you have what's called the Kildare Mutiny, which happened in the summer of 22. And they had all the stores of weapons and everything. And it was only after that there was an inquiry set up to deal with it. It was only after that the decision was made to make a non-armed force. So, you know, it was a really fraught beginning. Um, Some important decisions were made in terms of keeping them out of the Civil War when that happened. And other important decisions that were made were to really focus on on the ground experiences of crime. Because, of course, you hadn't had an effective police force for a number of years. And so things like pochine making, for instance, had kind of gone out of control. 
So what the Civic Guard did when they went into community was focused on addressing ills like that, were actually which were playing havoc with communities um, and their lives. And so by addressing those things, they started to get some kind of support from the community to a certain extent. In this formative period, Vicky has identified key decisions that moulded Angarda Shiokana going forward. One of these saw the force become heavily politicised. Like the O'Shiel inquiry had recommend that local, that the police be accountable at a local level to local communities, and which was already done in England and Wales. Like this wasn't a novel idea, but this was not adopted at all. So what was retained was deeply political control over the police out of a fear of what could happen in the state. And of course, that started to come to fruition. So when De Valera comes to power, he very quickly sacks O'Duffy as the commissioner, citing how he wants to have a commissioner that he can trust and which just tells you so directly how political an issue this was and how much the government wanted to be able to control the police in that way. The politicisation of the force was most obvious in these early days in its attitude towards the IRA. The Gardaí's attitude to the IRA varied depending on who was in power. The first government of Commonwealth was deeply hostile to the IRA, while the following administration of Fianna Fáil was more sympathetic. Both adopted a deeply political approach to the matter, as Vicky explains. You know, through the 20s, the guards have been kind of, I suppose, cracking down quite heavily on the IRA, any training or drilling that they were engaging with. And that shifts in the early 30s when De Valera comes to power. We see a lot less um, intense policing of the IRA. And then, of course, we end up in the blue shirt crisis and... Like you've literally, when you look back on it, there were riots in Tralee with grenades being thrown and the army having to come in and help. Um, there are actually some exceptionally tense moments that emerged in the early 1930s because of, well, partly because of this, the more standoffish approach that the police have been taking to the IRA. So I think at all times that was highly political policing. You know, how they were engaging with the IRA was being determined by the government of the day. As I explained at the outset of the show, the foundation of the Gardaí is often held aloft as one of the great achievements of the first government after independence, and particularly the fact that they managed to establish an unarmed police force. I asked Vicky about what she thinks about this interpretation. Yeah, I, I don't accept this kind of narrative of the unarmed force arising from the ashes of the state. That's the kind of um in the most incredible achievement you know it, it became unarmed out of fear um of what would happen if they were armed um because we'd had this mutiny in Kildare and in reality um you know the when we talk about an unarmed police force that makes it sound very kind of benign and friendly in a way or I, I think that's what people take from it whereas I don't feel really that's the case at all. I mean, the history of policing in Ireland is absolutely littered with moments of intense violence. Um, Angarda Siakona has a very long history of being a very violent police force. I remember being struck a few years ago where um, at a recent um, student protest and a baton charge was um, launched and as somebody at the time made the comment that we never see baton charges in Ireland it's not the case every single decade there are moments where we have baton charges um you know it, there is a very violent history of policing in Ireland and I think policing is has been always deeply politicized in those early years 
the force was also used to project um, what I would call like the kind of post-national, the post-colonial ideology of what Ireland was. So like you also see at the same time, they were deeply religious. Um, they went on pilgrimages to Rome and met Mussolini. Um, they were all pioneers. Um, they lived in the stations. They weren't allowed to get married without permission. Their sports days were absolutely legendary within the community, um, real gatherings. And, you know, because they were the one state institution that was in operation in every single town and parish, they had that ability to, they were the presence of the state in all of those communities. Um, And there was a real ability to kind of shape this narrative of what Ireland could be. So they played a really important role um, in in that post-colonial project. The outbreak of the conflict in the north, known as the Troubles, in the late 1960s, would prove a pivotal moment for the Gardaí. This changed the nature of policing in Ireland and the risks involved in being a member of the force. Over the course of the conflict, 12 Gardaí were killed, usually while attempting to stop robberies by Republicans. Vicky explains the impact this had, particularly the death of Garda Dick Fallon, who was shot by members of an organisation called Serera during a bank robbery in Dublin. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Recently, I had a minor argument with a close friend that brought up things from my past that I really needed to get off my chest. I think we've all been there. Now, I found therapy a really great way to work through these issues. For me, I really like online therapy. And BetterHelp is a really great online service that allows you to make space for therapy no matter how busy you are. BetterHelp is convenient, affordable and gives you the support you need but also works around your schedule. It's really easy to get up and running with a therapist on BetterHelp. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do your sessions by text, phone or video call, whichever suits you best. It's all about flexibility, working around your schedule. At the moment, BetterHelp are offering listeners to the show 10% off their first month. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. 
Visit betterhelp.com slash irishhistory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash irishhistory. Garda Dick Fallon was murdered in 1970 and it, it's really an absolutely defining moment for the foreign guard Chiacona. Like I interviewed, you know, nearly 50 guardy for my work and retired guardy. And when you ask them what their worst moment as a member was, any of them that were serving at that time will name Dick Fallon. That death was the worst moment for the organization. It completely changed what it meant to be a guard because that kind of danger was not part of their work. Um, They were the, authority in all communities they had that standing that position they were not threatened um whereas now danger was there and we have 12 guardy killed over the course of the conflict and it's interesting because i've written about the fact that you'd over 300 killed in the ruc but actually when you get to that number there's a degree of normalization so but every time a guard died in ireland it was still a really exceptional event this had a profound impact on the Gardaí as an institution, but also how the authorities and those charged with overseeing the organisation treated them. Restraints were moved. And one of the most important things for me in terms of that is that if you take Ireland in the late 60s, early 70s, it was really starting to question authority every which way. Um, television, joining the EU, um, the the position of the church the position of politicians we were all starting to demand and see our our right to accountability but the killing of guards just put that out the window in terms of the guards they were untouchable um we have ministers for justice saying they're the the fine line between us and the dark night of terrorism we have a minister for justice who says it may be for the members of the house to criticize the guards but it's not for the government of the day when in fact the guards were accountable to the government so that's exactly who should have been asking those questions so what you get is that on the one hand, it becomes a really dangerous job and like a really, really tough job, particularly for those who were seconded to the border. That was horrible work. They had no equipment. They could be standing out on a roadside for 16 hours in the dark. And, you know, in certain parts of the border, they were hated, um, particularly around Dundalk and other areas. They were seen as doing Maggie's work. Um, so, you know, that was a really tough job to be doing at the time. There's no doubt about that and a lot of danger involved. But at the same time, there was huge political pressure to be seen to be doing something. And I, like, I do think the guards were put in a very tough position politically because dependent on the government, there was a demand to be seen to be doing something about the IRA, but didn't want to do too much. And so I think politically they were you almost get this, you know, not express, but this subconscious deal that, look, do what you need to do to crack down on the IRA and we won't hold you to account because we know we're not giving you the proper tools and resources that you would need to actually deal with this properly. You get a lot of laws passed with seven-day detention and stuff, but that was never actually what was going to help. I've guards saying that just leaves you babysitting members of the IRA for a week. So what you get is the guards doing whatever they can to try and get results and that that turns into the heavy gang that turns into huge abuse of detainees i asked vicky to explain the heavy gang 
The heavy gang was um, is said to be a group of about 12 men who are all members of the special branch and more particularly a unit called the murder squad. And the idea was that they would go around systematically to um, deal particularly, it said, um, with the IRA who are quite well trained to withstand interrogation um, and try and force confessions. Um, and they used... Um, highly unacceptable means to do so. So I interviewed one um, retired detective who told me he was in that gang and he talked about a time when he went in and you try and get a guy talking about something um, and he got this guy talking about sports and then it turned out the kid was claustrophobic. So he shoved him one in one of those tall metal lockers that some of us might remember from school for 20 minutes until he confessed. Um, we have massively violent accounts from people like Nikki Kelly and Oscar Brahanuk um, about just being beaten to the point of where you would confess to anything. And so some of our most significant miscarriages of justice are connected with the heavy gang. Um, and they really, you know, Amnesty International had done a study on them and found evidence that it existed and the government simply refused to act. It wouldn't do anything. It didn't order an inquiry. It didn't engage with it at all and their existence has always been denied by the state which is really ironic because at the same time that this was happening Ireland had taken the UK to the European Court of Human Rights for the treatment of the hooded men in Northern Ireland um, and the torture techniques so they were all for investigating and condemning these tactics when they were used against Irish citizens in another state, but weren't willing to reflect on what was happening here. In her podcast, Policed, Vicky has interviewed one man who was subjected to such treatment. Oscar Brannock told us about his experiences when he was arrested for um, involvement in the Salins mail train robbery. And of course, robberies were really... Um, armed robberies skyrocketed during the Troubles because people would rob banks or mail trains or so on to get money to fund their activities Um, and that was one of the most for for guards away from the border that would have been one of the most dangerous dimensions of the job for them and they also had to do things like man prisons and um, quarries where people would have gone to steal explosives you know there was a huge range of activities that stemmed from the um, from the troubles but yeah, Oscar Brannock was one of about a dozen men that were rounded up um, after the Salins mail train was robbed. And it, it's a really difficult story to listen to. Um, there was next to no evidence. A, a number of them were beaten until they confessed to something that they absolutely did not do. And they very much are clear they only confessed to to stop the torture from proceeding. And then they are... And one of the things that enabled all of this was that the state had introduced the special criminal court, which is a three judge court, which doesn't have a jury. Um, So it's three judges that sit. And I suppose a lot of guards at the time felt that those judges were sympathetic to the system in which the guards were operating. And, you know, if somebody alleged that they'd been beaten during custody the judges would often say well you can take a civil matter if you want for that but it doesn't affect the evidence before us today um and so Oscar Brown and Nikki Kelly and a number of others 
um, were convicted and it took um, time to get their convictions overturned and they're still trying to get apologies and accountability um, in relation to their cases. This history of the Gardaí, for some at least, may seem very different to what they have experienced personally when dealing with the force. But as Vicky explained, different individuals and communities right up to the present can have very different experiences of this same force. For example, the experience of middle-class communities is worlds apart from the way working-class communities interact with the police, as Vicky now explains. Yeah, I mean, one of the things for me is I think if you're middle-class in Ireland, the majority of your dealings with the police are getting your passport signed or, or that kind of thing. Um, maybe you've been a victim of a crime and they've engaged with you and probably you know maybe it didn't get resolved but they were very nice to you and that was all fine that is not the experience of everyone in Ireland and um and class is a real divide in terms of that so working class people feel policed by the guards they feel like they are looked down at um and it's as simple as how they're spoken to um like that degree of civility um as long being accused of being absent but also that they're, you know, they're fair game for um, for being arrested and charged with offences. That and it's this thing, and again, you get this internationally that they're both over policed and under policed. So when they're victims, they don't get the support of the police, and they're under policed in that respect. But when it comes to criminality, they're over policed. So the police spend more time in those areas. Um, and, you know, people who are, if you've higher levels of unemployment, people are hanging around on the streets a bit more. They're what we call an available population for stop and searches. So they become, you know, and stop and search for young people in these communities is, you know, a weekly issue. Um, and again, middle class kids, this is not something they pretty much ever encounter. Um, so there's a real divide in terms of who becomes the focus of policing who gets police support and who gets criminalised by the police and who gets dragged into the system um, and how they're treated when they are. Um, And it's a massive issue in Ireland that's, I I don't think, been looked at anywhere near enough as yet. Gender can also lead to very different experiences. Men and women were not policed in the same way, although, as Vicky explains, this is one area which has seen some positive changes emerge due to covid I would say broadly, I mean, women's experience of policing in Ireland is is very, very poor, um, whether it's being um, sent to Magdalene Laundries and delivered there by police um, or whether it's, you know, their, the, the violence towards them not being properly investigated. Domestic violence internationally has been very poorly dealt with by police. So part of this is that in any police organisation, um, a subculture emerges, um, an organisation, an occupational culture. And a big part of that, the traits of that are things like machismo and conservatism. And all of these would tend towards whether you felt this way when you joined over time, um, beliefs would emerge that really what a man does in his own home is his own business. And we see work from like academic work from the States in the UK in the 60s and 70s that sees domestic violence being described as rubbish work um, something they don't want to get involved in. Um, and part of the problem then is as people did start to call the police because 
like one of the things we see in Ireland is that it's been dealt with very much as a civil issue. Um, so a victim of domestic violence comes forward and she's told to go get all of these orders, a safety order or a barring order, rather than dealing with it as a crime and saying you've been assaulted and we're going to prosecute that. And, you know, there has, I think it's only in recent years that we fully come to understand the dynamics of an abusive relationship and how there can be issues of codependency, how there can be financial dependencies and so on. And so it's not as simple as just leaving. Um, and yet the police would often have got very frustrated that a woman comes forward, makes a complaint and then withdraws that. Um, and so from that misunderstanding of the dynamic, um, they become less inclined to um, engage because they just think this is going to go nowhere and we're just wasting our time if we do it. Um, one of the most amazing things about COVID has been the shift in how domestic violence has been policed. I think when we look back on COVID, it's one of, going to be one of the greatest achievements. Um, we now have what are called divisional protective services units. So in every division of the country, we have this protective service unit, which includes staff that are trained to a pretty exceptional level. I think it's a two week course they have to do. Um, and they're they're really kind of professionally aware of all the nuances of these relationships, of course, of control and so on. And we've seen that the police have reached in um, to these two women who, and not just women, but to victims of domestic violence um, and to show their support. But there's a lot more that can be done. And we see really interesting stuff. Um, happening in England for instance the use of body worn cameras can make a big difference because you get that visual at the scene of like how messed up the living room is or the appearances of bruises and so on and um, so there's a lot more that can happen in this space and we still have a very civil response to it rather than criminal but it's it's a vastly changing space right now thanks be to god following on from this one episode of pleased that really stood out for me was Gabrielle's story, which is an account of a woman who was born in a mother and baby home and then survived the Magdalene laundries and looks at the role of the Garthi in this system. Now, one final experience that may be very different is that of ethnic minorities. I asked Vicky specifically about the travelling community and their experience of interacting with the Garthi. Um, I mean, any of the reports that we encounter are very negative on both of those issues. So... A human rights audit um, conducted in 2004, which was actually commissioned by the guards themselves, um, found that the guards were institutionally racist, um, which doesn't it. It's much more than just like members are racist. It's that all of the structures, the systems, the responses of the guards are are racism is embedded in all of those things. Um so that's a really key problem. And historically, the, the guards have, you know, not been supported, supportive of members of the traveling community and would have um, facilitated a lot of the discrimination um, and contributed to it, no doubt, through their criminalization of the traveler community. Um, we know they're highly overrepresented in the prisons Um which is our best indicator for how they're being treated by the guards. One of the biggest problems we have in this area at the moment is that the guards do not collect any ethnicity data 
on persons that they stop, search, arrest, detain, interview. I mean, we don't know how many guards, people the guards arrest on an annual basis. Um, and we certainly don't know the proportion of those that are from ethnic minority communities. Um, we don't know how many of them traveler. We know this about the prison system. Um, so we can see the end result um, of what the guards are doing. But it's really problematic that we don't have this data and they are obliged under UN Convention law to gather this. Um, but it really impedes us from knowing um, what the guards are doing and how exactly they are treating people. But all of the evidence from, you know, the Irish Traveller movement and different groups, Pavi Point and so on, will be very negative about their experiences with the traveller community. Finally, before I finished, given her expertise, I was curious what Vicky thought the future holds for the Gardaí. I think as we enter kind of like all of these centenary discussions, I think there is a great deal of harm that the guards have done to our society over the last 70 or 80 years. Often, you know, maybe with benignly positive intentions, um, but whether it's, you know, Magdalene laundries or how they've treated persons with disabilities or the travellers and so on. And I think as much as with everything else, I think if we have to address and acknowledge that role that they've played in these things um, if we are to move on and reform policing and make it um, like the democratic, um, engaged, human rights-focused police service that we want. And there's a huge amount of reform um, coming in the next two to three years in terms of policing on the back of the Commission on the Future of Policing. So how we structure, organise, govern, hold to account the police, but also the powers that they have when they can stop, search, arrest, detain and so on. All of that is going to be reformed in the next couple of years. And I think it's really important that we bear in mind that history, how they have been at times politicised, how they have failed to support uh, vulnerable communities in our society. Um, And it's really important that we all engage with those experiences and listen to people who've been policed um, to ensure that future reform kind of creates the type of police forces that treats everyone fairly and equally. I would like to thank Vicky for her time. I'm not sure if I'll have another episode out before the end of the year. I'll definitely try, but I am busy preparing the series on the War of Independence, which begins in early 2021. If I don't get that show out, I'd like to thank all of you for your support throughout what has been a very difficult year, and I'm looking forward to a much better 2021. Hopefully I'll speak to you before it, but if not, I hope you all have a lovely Christmas. Until next time, Sloan. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.